Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, good to be back. Uh, episode that's not about zombies and ghosts and things that go bump in the night. Yes, but that was a fun break. It was a fun break. Necessary fun for <laughs> Halloween and Souls Days and related such things. They yes. Yes. But now I think we're going to wrap up some of the stuff that we were talking about um, on the origins of medieval theater and the decolonization thereof. Yes. Yeah. We have gone through most of the, like, continents. <laughs> yes. We have just discussed how... Australia and New Zealand are going to get their own episodes separately. Yes. Because they were definitely less connected from the rest of the world, cut off from, maybe we would say, um, in ways that even though we sort of assume somehow that, you know, Asia and Africa and Europe are all separate, that both is and isn't true, right? There is mm -hmm. trade. Things do make their way across vast distances. Um, so that's a little bit, little bit different. Yeah, but, I remember reading recently that I think they found some coins that had originated in Africa in uh, in Australia, mm -hmm. which, you know, you feel like it's a mystery. How did it get there? But at the same time, yes. it's not that interesting of a mystery because it probably came on a boat it with definitely somebody came on a boat, who was yes. doing trading. <laughs> yes. But, but there yeah. are a lot of things like that, right? You know, stuff that ended up in North America because of the Vikings and... Mm -hmm. um, and frequently, you know, they start to find far more stuff than they thought was there, I guess is what you'd say. Yeah. Which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes, of course, they also date things. So sometimes they know that people arrived in various places, but then they'll find a coin that will suddenly tell you they must have come earlier. Right? Yeah. Because, you know, um, they wouldn't have had this coin otherwise if they hadn't come at whatever point. Um Yeah. So we'll talk about all of this in more depth later on. Yes. To go back to the beginning of this... Conversation? Yes. Conversation, yes. Series. So series. Yeah. Series, yes. It's sort of mini-series. We talked a lot about uh, puppets around the world, uh, different dance dramas. Yes. We've talked about physical comedy in the Commedia dell'arte, Kyogen... Hrotsvit, we talked about extensively. Yes. So if you're really interested in Hrotsvit, you should definitely go check that out. And the problem is I haven't decided how the episodes will be numbered at this point, so I can't just say, go see episode Yes, I actually did renumber how I think they're going to be. Okay. So I think that Hrotsvit is actually episode 22. I think okay. we actually just talked about Halloween, but I think there have been two theater episodes before this, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, we'll but put now in you know the when notes. we recorded it. Yes. <laughs> yes, we'll put in the notes. We'll figure this out. So today, we're going to sort of summarize all the stuff that we didn't get to yet, um, talking about medieval theater. Yes. Well, in some ways, finishing up some odds and ends, right? Because um, we also talked, of course, about musical theater. Um, like Chinese opera, but essentially, um, one of the things we didn't really talk about that everyone does 
Heaven Common, or the actual theater itself. Mm-hmm. So where are you performing? Right. Um, one of the things that we talked about in, in our sort of introduction is what is different between theater and performance. Right. Um, and of course, one of the things that is different is that theater is in a certain location. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be site specific, but you know, it's a performance that happens in a specific place and people show up right. to see it. <laughs> right. Um, so where are you perform- joking with some of my friends who do community theater about doing socially distanced theater where they show up on somebody's lawn Yes. And like holler at each other. Yes. For a while. Um, but in yep. general, theater occurs in, you know, a coffee shop or on a stage in a hall sometimes. I mean, if it happens um, at a lawn, then the people will at least have probably hired you to be there and advertise to their neighbors to come to the window. Yes. Right. Ideally. <laughs> Um, I was thinking about this more as a performance art thing where ah, nobody knows until you show up and start shouting each other that there's yes. going to be a performance tonight. But, but see, that uh, is why it's performance art and that may be theater. <laughs> right. This is our distinction. Yes. 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 So well, um, it's, it's also theater by virtue of their shouting um, the beginning scene of Romeo and Juliet with all the biting of thumbs and, and ah, that sort perfect. of thing. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, so let's talk about what actual theaters are like. And, like, what was the theatrical environment like, maybe? Yes. Because, so, at least when we watch, you know, Good Omens or something that has a scene set in a Shakespearean theater, you get the feeling that there was, it's a very different environment, like, not people sitting down necessarily, a lot of shouting, more milling about, vegetables involved in various ways. (laughs) You're not allowed, if you go out to American Players Theater, I don't believe you're allowed to bring in a bag of rotten tomatoes just in case you decide you don't like um, their Fortinbras or whoever. Right. Um, Yes, and it's actually, it's worth pointing out, of course, that stand-up comedy and dinner theaters still do operate a little bit on this principle, right? Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily supposed to throw things, but definitely comics get things thrown at them. Right. Um, so there's the brilliant, brilliant episode in Blues Brothers where they've oh, yeah. taken someone else's gig, <laughs> the only country song they know is Rawhide, and they're behind a net. Yeah, it's like a chain-link fence almost, that goes across the front of the stage. Yes, and it's because of how everyone will get drunk and throw things at them. Um, even apparently if they were good, but particularly yeah. given, you know, what happens. Um, so, yeah, it's not that that sort of performance doesn't exist anymore, but we do tend not to associate it so much with theater these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, that's a huge giant problem in a lot of ways, because theater should be participatory, Really. Right. Um, the idea that the audience sits in a darkened room. So again, right, somewhere like APT, American Players Theater, does sort of walk on this line or the reconstructed globe. There are things that are modern about them. You do sit down. You can't just mill around. <laughs> right. But, you know, you aren't necessarily encouraged to shout things. This is true, unfortunately. But at the same time, right, you, you are... Um, a little more participatory, right? You're really in the same space as the actors in a lot of ways. The stage mm-hmm. comes out into the audience, which is known as a thrust stage. 
and you do share a space, and of course there may or may not be lighting depending on the time of day. Right. Some days there's rain. I mean, yes. <laughs> at least the outside stage at APT is very... Thunder lightning. Yes. Yes, we are talking about the outside stage. We should... The inside, of course, is a black box. <laughs> That's a traditional black box. Yes. Um, but this idea, right, that audiences sit in a darkened room in a space that is completely separate from the stage, right? So the actors almost don't know they're there and frequently are supposed to pretend they're not there, right? What we call the fourth wall. Yeah. Um, so as though, right, on a proscenium stage, which is a stage that has an archway that divides it from the audience. And there might be a little bit of stage in front of the archway. There might not be. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's an orchestra pit. Um, but essentially actors are behind the proscenium. And that proscenium is ostensibly an invisible fourth wall. <laughs> and this is a thing that Brecht was always interested in sort of breaking down. and Yes. Where you have people holding signs or whatever that say, like, this is a, this is a play. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the point is, of course, that this is modern, right? You couldn't do this until modern theaters existed. Right. Obviously. Also, you needed some form of modern lighting, mm -hmm. which is to say you had to be able to light the audience separately from the stage. Right. Um, you didn't have to have electricity <laughs> or even gas. Um, you can do this but to with be candles. fair. It seems like electricity is better because I think I read that sometimes women used to catch fire in when they were still using candles. Well, I mean, if they had a lot of petticoats or something. It was not specific to women at all. Okay, people did catch fire. Yeah, that's a big occupational hazard. Do not just a can't not to candles so much, but due to like fireworks and special effects usually. Okay, there are a few really famous instances of. Um, Special effects catching fires. Honestly, Shakespeare's <laughs> globe burned down when they shot off one of the cannons for Henry Oh, no. So okay. there you are. But a really well-behaved audience, they okay. held it out, nobody died. So there you are, right? No panic. Yes. But that idea of um, the sort of modern stage, right? That So here's sort of the deal here. Really, in all fairness... Uh, the shape of this stage goes back to the early modern period. Mm -hmm. um, so before Shakespeare's theater exists, court theaters are being built. And so we have the fact that theater is being done indoors in churches, sure. in palaces, right? In like great halls or dining halls or whatever in palaces, but also definitely in churches, um, you know, good, solid indoor spaces. And so um, Italy particularly you start to have um, specific stages being built indoors, right? So you have a room that is a theater. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually you actually get, you know, it might be a separate building, but they tend to be inside palaces, essentially. So, And they're known as court theaters. Right. Some of the earliest don't exist, you know? Like, I think there's one, maybe 1530s Ferrara. Rome has some early ones. One of the earliest that actually, the earliest that still exist are from a little bit later. So sort of 1580 to 85 uh, in Vicenza, the Teatro Olimpico, which becomes kind of a model for theaters later, um, like in Parma, the Teatro Farnese, 1617, 1618. And then the freestanding theater, Teatro Atlantica. Mm -hmm. And those are both of those, right? Teatro Farnese and Teatro Atlantico are both 
presumably based on the one in Vicenza, the Teatro Olimpico. But these are theaters that are built <laughs> on the proscenium style. But this is sort of the important part. The thing here is that they are built proscenium, for anyone who's listening and may have figured this out, <laughs> means in front of the scenery, proscene, right? The scene goes all the way back to Greece. Okay. Um, that's that's the scenery. That's the backdrop, essentially. Um, in, you know, the theater of Dionysus in Greece, it's stone. Mm-hmm. And of course, Greek theaters are a semicircle, right? The audience sits in a semicircle around a round stage. Yeah. And there's the Scanian back that's a tall stone monument. The seats are big old rake, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the seats are raked up like a modern stadium. Um, and any scenery for the play is built in front of the permanent Scanian. Okay. Right? And then you, you know, so you make it look like a palace, like whatever you want to look like. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have costumes, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So from Greece in Europe, we then get Rome, of course, which does use the semicircle, but also... The full circle, okay, <laughs> which we call the Colosseum, and which is still used for sports stadiums. It is a design that is sort of hard to improve upon, basically. This is a right. sort of a big scooped out dish. Yeah, where you have your you have your whatever going on in the middle, football mm-hmm. game or yep, cricket yeah. or whatever it is people do. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and then everything sports. is right, and the audience is just raked up yep. the sides, and you know baseball. It's and that's that's still how sports work, mm-hmm. right? Um, concerts go on in stages like this. Sometimes only a semicircle. They might cover off the back, and sometimes they don't. Yeah. But you know, this is still sort of the quintessential style, right? Um, semicircle or full circle, Colosseum style, with a raked raked audience. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you think about, um, it's something that we've now really elaborated to in a lot of ways. So, um, for example, like the floor of the U.S. Congress or something, Mm -hmm. right? We tend to view any big auditorium style setting (laughs) as probably based on this type of thing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So, you know, the Harry Potter movies, this is definitely what Quidditch looked like. It's a giant stadium. Um, The recent... Thor Ragnarok, you get a similarly, like, giant stadium. So the, you know, at this point, the rake practically goes up, like, into the sky. Yeah. Um, Like, in Thor Ragnarok, Valkyrie's actually sitting, like, up above it in her ship. (laughs) And, like, it makes sense, especially for sports, um, having, like, that really big rake, because you don't necessarily care, at least, you know, for, for your average sports ball game, you don't care that much about the expression on the face of any one player, but you can see everything that's going on. Yes. Um, and of course, the point is, what's sort of interesting to me, actually, about those examples, um, there are also some Star Wars examples from ugh, whichever not original series of movies. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> um, where, again, the politics, I think the Emperor is, you know, giving a speech to the whoever's, and, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's this big raked stadium and that idea that somehow it doesn't matter if it's science fiction it doesn't matter if it's superheroes it doesn't matter if it's futuristic (laughs) um this is still like nobody has invented something better Mm -hmm. right like you don't get better than that yeah um and that's fair i mean if you're looking for a big spectacle 
that's great. Yeah. You know, that's how a circus works, right? Audience surrounds the, you know, and anyway, um, so that's, so Greece and Rome. Um, so then in Europe, those theaters stick around. They're built out of stone. The Romans build a ton of theaters uh, throughout Europe, including Eastern Europe, Western Europe, North Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, they build theaters everywhere they go. Um, so a lot of their theaters are, are continue to be used, basically. Um, but otherwise, purpose-built theaters sort of go out of style in Europe. Um, and instead, if you want to do something in a theater, you actually you do it in an old theater, or you do it in the street, which we'll talk about, or you do it indoors. Sure. Like in a church. Um, so a church, a palace, right? Um, and so it's not really until sort of the late 1400s when we start getting things built in palaces again. Right. Um, and as that starts to happen, um, we have um, this really interesting new innovation um, that is perspective scenery. Oh, yes. So, yeah. So this is the big one. <laughs> In art history, the idea of perspective was sort of like... Da Vinci didn't really do it the way that modern, more more later Renaissance painters did it, right? Like, Da Vinci right. is sort of the beginning of Renaissance painting. In a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, he's medieval, technically. Yeah. Right. But I should um, say but yeah, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci anyway. and not referred to him by uh, his... It's a sort of... Yeah. His place. Yes. Whatever. But... Yeah, but he, but, um, Vitruvius is also really, really yeah. important, right? The Architectura. Um, and so this sort of new innovation of not just perspective, but perspective scenery. And so what happens is <laughs> you have this interesting combination of, right? The thing is, if you're in a Colosseum space, you can't build a permanent set. Because someone's going to be sitting behind it. Mm -hmm. Right? You can have all the props and whatever you want, but no permanent fancy set pieces. Right? Um, it's very participatory. You're yelling at the people down there and whatever. <laughs> they're doing whatever they're doing. If they're sports, then they might be yelling back. You know, who knows? Um, the semicircle, you can have that permanent backdrop. Mm -hmm. Right? You can have, you can have scenery. Well... <laughs> Essentially, this takes that over, but there's a realization that um, what if this permanent backdrop, instead of just being one solid thing, like, you know, a wall that's supposed to be the front wall of a palace that people come in and out of, what if instead it was done in perspective? Hmm. So it actually wasn't solid. You basically have um, set pieces in the wings that are staggered, right? So... They're sort of, um, we'll put some diagrams in the notes, but essentially it's a V shape, right? Starting at the stage, at the front proscenium, you have the opening of the V, and then it goes all the way and tapers and meets in the back. Oh, sure. So the backdrop is way in the back, and it makes everything look tiny. And then as you move up, you have set pieces um, that essentially are on either side, like an archway. Mm -hmm. 
right? And they'll show you like a street, you know? So you're looking at a street going down the middle of the stage, getting narrower, 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 and at the end, like maybe it ends in a palace no. or something, right? That's yeah. the backdrop. You can um, now do the... But coming up the sides of the street... You could do the physical comedy bit where people like chase each other through different rooms, like across a hallway? No. no. So this is the interesting oh. part. Um, coming up from that backdrop, as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you've got essentially these arches mm -hmm. that are hanging, right, with scenery. There's usually no top. There's just the sides. But, you know, you'll have, like, the houses in the street. Okay. So you'll have, like, a, um, a, a flat that's horizontal facing the audience that has, like, the front of a house painted on it. Okay. You know, and then there's one ten feet in front of that that's, like bigger and then bigger and bigger and bigger and you get all the way up to the actual proscenium and then the one there is the biggest mm -hmm. right and these are on both sides so you sort of look it looks as though there are houses on either side of the street getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller tapering into the back at the back of the back the actors act in front of the proscenium wow right the proscenium arch is in front of the scenery okay it is pro skinny it's in front of the scenery so it's still really a backdrop. Like, they're not super interacting with it. Yes. They do not interact with it because if you walk back up that street, you're going to destroy the perspective. Oh. <laughs> That's right. right. You, won't, <laughs> you won't get smaller in the same way that... You will not get smaller. Yeah. Even if you do that little thing where you pretend you're walking downstairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you will not get smaller. Yeah. And lots of disappearing behind the sofa. Yes. As we exactly call it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, sadly, that Lotsie won't, won't actually make you shrink. Uh -huh. um, and therefore, actors don't go behind the proscenium. Okay. Now, this is a brilliant, brilliant innovation. And what it does is it takes that sort of aspect of the semicircle that says we want a permanent set, but alters it a little bit. You don't want people sitting in a full semicircle around this set. They need to be sitting straight in front of it. Because otherwise, the perspective, of course, gets lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're sitting on the side, you're going to see through all the slats into the wings. And you're going to see that they're just fake slats, mm -hmm. you know, flats that are painted. Right. But if you're directly in front of it, then it looks like the forced perspective. Yeah. Right? So the proscenium arch is actually in front of the scenery. Actors act in front of the proscenium. They never go behind it, so the perspective isn't destroyed. We'll put up... So I listed off some of the ones that are still around. This is sort of where this starts. That being said, there's some Baroque theaters. Two in particular. We're going to put up some videos in the notes. Chesky Karmalov and the Czech Republic from 1768. Um, and then also Stockholm, Sweden. Um, the Drottingholm Palace Theater, 1766-68. Uh, um, both of these uh, still work. <laughs> And there are some great videos of the sets changing. Okay. And this is all wooden pulleys and people power. And essentially, so what I said was, right, you have these flats that, you know, come in, that sort of recede into the background. They get smaller, smaller. The things painted on them get smaller and smaller. They are the perspective. When you were changing a scene, what would happen? Say you're in a street mm -hmm. and then someone does decide to go into the palace. Um, you would have the flats of the room in the palace you wanted to be in, where probably it would be like the walls on either side of the room going back mm -hmm. with their lights fixtures going back. You would set those up in such a way that then they could be switched out okay. for the old flats. 
So they would sort of move in past the old flats. The old flats would move out. Um, and a new brack drop would unfurl in the very back behind it all. So were they using like those, what do you call them? Those flying bars at that point? Or were they all kind sort of, of? It's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this is the 1700s, so it's, it's modern-ish. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's modern. Yeah. This is, so, you know, early modern verging on modern modern, right? But these, so this is where, re, you know, these Baroque theaters really reached its high point, basically. And with these, actually, you could go up a little bit into the scenery and interact. Mm-hmm. Um, you still obviously can't go too far back, <laughs> but you could maybe interact with, like, the first flat or something. Okay. Right? Sure. Um, so things got really complicated. Uh, but the original theaters, so these are built in courts. Um, and, of course, this is one of the places where that idea that the um, best seat in the house is the first row of the mezzanine or whatever, mm-hmm. right? That is the best place to view prospective scenery. Yeah. Right? You can see all the people below you, you know, all the people sitting on the floor. Mm-hmm. Not the actual floor. I mean, they're on chairs. But, I mean, right. we call it the house floor. <laughs> floor seats, right? <laughs> um, so you can see all those people. You can see the scenery perfectly because you're dead center. Great, and everyone can turn around and look at you, because you're the king or the queen or the duke or the duchess or whoever you are. Yeah. Right? Brilliant. So that seat becomes the seat. Nowadays, of course, it may or may not be, because we don't do, even for a proscenium stage, they don't work the same way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that idea sort of held on that those seats are the best seats. Um, But anyway, so that's that's sort of where that idea comes from. And these start to be built in courts, right, in palaces. With very degrees of fanciness. Which sort of makes sense. Like, yes, you have to have a lot of money to have, like, a specific purpose-built room in your building that can be just given over to, like, once in a while people come and sit here and watch things. Yes. And, you know, you'd probably do music there as well and stuff. But, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Right? The idea that it's just for performances... Um, and that it's much fancier than whatever your music room looked like, no matter how fancy right. your palace music room looked. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right. And the real, of course, the point really is the technology. This is great new technology. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, not all theaters built in courts have this level of perspective scenery. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that is sort of the new innovation. So that's where the proscenium comes from. And as I said, it sort of originates in the, late 1400s in Italy moves its way forward. Um, We really get the first court theaters built along this line, early 1500s. Okay. What happens is in the Baroque period, so we're in the 1700s now, right? We got these amazing things being built like Czech Republic, Sweden. As we move forward into the Baroque period, there's the sort of realization that this, doing this with scenery is real expensive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you have a huge chunk of stage that your actors can't use. (laughs) because <laughs> they can't go back okay. there. Right. Right? Right. So it's this huge, you have this deep, you need these deep, deep stages to be able to do this. And your actors can only act in front of the proscenium. So you need this big right. lip on the stage, essentially. But what if your actors could actually interact with the scenery? Yeah. Ah! That would be cool. Think of what could do. Yeah. So <laughs> what happens is we do have some changes, right? People start sort of taking out the perspective scenery and doing what we are now used to seeing, which is having sort of a set that the actors can interact with. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and when that happens, the actors, of course, then move behind the proscenium. 
Because now they have to be up on the stage, yeah, <laughs> upstage, interacting with the set. Right? Um, and as they move behind the proscenium, eventually, and by eventually I mean in the late 1800s, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, we're only in the 1700s, now Very we're in the late recently. 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you get some people with the bright, bright idea that if they're behind this sort of archway, what if they don't actually acknowledge the audience? Hmm. What if they don't talk to the audience? What if they pretend they don't know the audience is there? Right? This is the beginnings of what we call realism. Aha. Uh-huh. So I'm going to tap Ibsen on the shoulder here. He's not alone, obviously, but he deserves a good chunk of credit because he not only helps popularize realism, but also specifically realism as a social genre, which okay. is important, right? It makes social commentary. We don't always think of it that way, but that is its purpose. That is what it's supposed to do. That's the point of family realism drama of which actually American realism will ultimately become kind of like the hallmark. But that's where you start to get this idea. Because now that actors are behind the proscenium, you can pretend it's an invisible fourth wall and we're basically staring into their houses voyeurs. Hmm. Yes. They don't have to acknowledge us. We don't acknowledge that we're peeping in on them. But you have this sort of invisible wall that's the proscenium. Yeah, the fourth wall. I think when I was a kid, so... At Lyric Opera in Chicago, um, they have, like, you know, like, they raise the curtain, and then they have, like, I don't know what you call it, but it's, like, a very sheer curtain that oh, you yeah, can yeah. see people walking around behind it yep, during the scrim. overture or whatever. Yeah, the scrim. Yeah. And I always pictured the, like, the fourth wall as being like that yes. when, I was, <laughs> when I was young, that yeah. it was, like, you know, they can't see through it, but we can because of the way the lighting is. I don't yes. know, maybe they can see through it, but... Um, right. I mean, that is that is obviously a literalization of this idea, right? I'm a literal person. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's weird. Well, no, but I mean, the scrim itself is. That's what I <laughs> yes. mean. Yes. Right, that is a designer-director, basically, because, of course, operas, a lot of operas are from before this idea existed. Mm-hmm. They're Baroque operas, and they are from the time when actors were in front of the proscenium, mm-hmm. or certainly when actors still talk to the audience. Yeah. Right. I mean, that explains, like, a lot of opera traditions of, like, Mm -hmm. somebody sings their aria really great, and so they just do an encore right there, or just, they go back and do the tricky bits again, just to, uh, you know, to please the audience. Yes, it is interactive. Yeah. Yeah. And it should be interactive, right? Um, So that idea, though, that then with this fourth wall that we're supposed to be silent so that they don't know we're here. <laughs> this, you know, um, and again, right? This does tend to match up with the beginnings of like modern mm-hmm. lighting, first gas and then electricity. So the idea that you could turn off all the house lights on the audience—that's they're the house—you could turn off all the house lights and leave the stage lights up, and of course yeah. change them. You know, make them lighter, darker, romantic, sad, whatever. Stage lighting is what we call it. That, of course, then just adds to this overall effect. They can put the audience in a completely separate space from the actors. So yes, Brecht, of course, comes along not really <laughs> that long after it's been created, right. you know, as a real thing, um, and is definitely against it. You know, <laughs> it's a silly sort of pretension, and he wants to get rid of it. Um, and that's totally f- right. fair, you know. But of course, he wants to get rid of a lot of, you know, not just realism, but all sorts of things that, you know, accrued to realism even mm-hmm. before that. But absolutely, right? He's very much into the idea of the audience should know that this is a spectacle. You should see the wires. You should see the scenery changing. Why not? You know? 
um, this is not a real window. Great. You know, I mean, the gun says bang, whatever. Yeah, so he absolutely is out to destroy a lot of that. Um, But a lot of modern theater, it's interesting because realism has remained so influential. A lot of modern theater has been geared towards trying to Mm -hmm. do something else. And yet for most of history, we did something else. Right. So sort of backing up again, you know, even in original proscenium stages, yes, they absolutely talked to the audience. They were in front of the audience because they were in front of the proscenium. Right. So they were right there with the audience. They're out in the audience. Right. Um, and that's true. Of course, court theaters, you talk to the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, better. <laughs> I mean, and you better listen to what they're yelling at you, too. Yeah. Like, that's, that's a little more. Yeah. So this really interesting sense we have of how theater works, it's. It's a purely modern idea, mm-hmm. and it is really unfortunate in a lot of ways. Um, just because theater should be participatory, obviously, there should be that interaction. But also, um, things like sensory-friendly performances, which in the UK they call relaxed performances, where which are really for people um, who are sort of neurodiverse, mm-hmm. um, but also anyone. Like, if, you know, maybe you just can't sit still in a theater for however long, for whatever mm-hmm. reasons. You know, it's unfortunate in some ways that there, that modern theater really, a lot of times, has taken this on as sort of how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and yes, if you back up into Baroque theater, people wandered around all the time. Yeah, you had, like, seats, or you had a general area you were supposed to sit in. Yeah. But you got up and wandered around, you could wander around your section. And this is one of the big things, you know, Greek theater, Roman theater, again, like, you might be in a certain section because of your class or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as you know, you could certainly wander around. They didn't have sort of assigned seats yeah. in the way we do today. And you could move around during the performance, of course. Um, and so this brings us, of course, roundabout long ways, to the first purpose-built um, public theater <laughs> um, in Europe, which is built, um, or in England, which is built by the guy who founded Shakespeare's troupe, essentially, by James Burbage. Um, and he calls it the theater. Okay. <laughs> it's um, descriptive. And he builds it. He's a carpenter, right? Uh, he builds it in 1576. Yes. And so 1576, yeah. you'll notice, right? This is really early. It's It's before even Italy was building, like, separate buildings for theaters. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the court theaters. You got so right, they're building sort of purpose-built theaters, but to build a whole building outside mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a purpose-built public theater, you know, yeah, it's not sponsored by royalty. Nobody paid for it in that way. Um, this is a guy who's going to like charge people to come see plays. <laughs> he just had a moment of like, if you build it, they will come. Yes, and they did come. Yay! Yeah. It's very exciting. It's a very exciting moment for England because it really helps put them on the map, honestly, culturally. Um, before this, <laughs> you know, they're not as whatever. Yeah. Kind of a backwater. Yes. Sorry, England. Well, no. I mean, honestly, like, how much would we care about their history before this? I mean, they have an extraordinary history. Richard III, he's mm-hmm. a fantastic villain. But would we care about whether or not he absolutely killed the princes if Shakespeare hadn't written about him? No. We we certainly might give him the benefit of the doubt on that one if Shakespeare yes. hadn't made it quite so. Uh, I mean, I think we sort know. of do anyway, right? But it, nonetheless, <laughs> it's it's just one of those things. Like, would we care so much? 
who he was? Would people have been so excited mm-hmm. when he was found in a car park? No, I mean, it would have been some little article in, like, National Geographic or whatever. Yes. Architecture, I mean, Archaeology Magazine. Um, and instead it was, like, world news, you know? Mm-hmm. And For so, those who missed the article, it's not that he was found wandering about a car park, right. which would have been extremely exciting. <laughs> been they awesome. just found that his body had been buried in a field that later became a car park. Yes. Well, it was originally, they, it wasn't originally a yeah. field, right? It was a monastery that dissolved like a, and then, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. After a long time, mm-hmm. they put up a car park and then they pulled down the car park or yes. something and but they had actually his body. Yes. And they actually weren't as surprised as they could have been because they were pretty sure that the, yeah, sort of monastery he was buried in was thereabouts, the religious institution, mm-hmm. I guess, that he was buried in, uh, was thereabouts before it was destroyed. You know, but it they really weren't quite feels sure. like yeah. weirdly mm-hmm. difficult to do any sort of construction in the UK without finding some sort of grave. Yeah, which is kind of great, though. I don't know if it's just like reading about all the plague pits in London or what, mm-hmm. but... But hey, this is how we do history. You gotta be careful. You know, because then someone else is paying for you to dig it up. That's true. <laughs> um, which is helpful. Yeah. I'll just need need that. Um, part of the Rose, which is one of Shakespeare's rival theaters, right, is under a bank. <laughs> if, I was just say, like, if you just go to a park and start digging without anybody paying for it, then I think you are, like, committing some sort of vandalism rather than history. Right. <laughs> well, it's not the paying for it's the... You know, you might have a permit because you're an archaeologist, but someone yeah. needs to fund you, is the point. Yeah. Um, and by the way, when I say the rose is under a bank, I mean, like, they built it in such a way that you can go see it if you're on a tour. They didn't cover it back up again, but that is how they found it. Aha. Yes. You know, it's very, it happens all over Europe. It happens all mm-hmm. over Italy, of course. You know, this is how you find these things, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Richard Burbage, um, Richard Burbage. Uh, Richard Burbage and Cuthbert Burbage are the sons of James Burbage. And Richard, of course, is going to become famous uh, for basically, um, you know, being the first person to play. He originates all of Shakespeare's big lead roles until he dies. And Cuthbert is the businessman, essentially. He turns up in Shakespeare in Love, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, Shakespeare in Love actually... We mostly meet Henslow, Philip Henslow, who who actually that the Rose was his theater, and his lead hmm. actor Edward Allen, also known as Ned, who's played by Ben Affleck, which I honestly yeah. really think is was phenomenal casting. Edward Allen was sort of a superstar matinee idol of his day. He was Henslow's son-in-law, uh, and he was the head of the company that Henslow found well funded funded, um, and they were in the Rose. Um, and so, um, Shakespeare did write some stuff and work some with them a bit, but what happens is, so James Burbage, yes, has this epiphany. He builds it. They come. This is 1576. He just calls it the theater because no one else has done it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, no one's going to get confused, right? (laughs) The original article. Yes. Um, he's got a 20 year lease. There's a variety of stuff that happens, but basically the landlord is sort of not willing to renew the lease for a long time. And um, he kind of pretty clearly wants, sort of wants it all for himself, maybe. Also, there's some other people, like James Burbage had gotten some of the money from this other person. And anyway, so various things are going on. Um, They're not going to get their lease renewed the way they want it. usual with modern theater, financing is a problem. Yes. So Richard and Cuthbert get together a big group of friends. 
And they're like, look, um, will you all buy stakes in our company? Let's join a company we'll found, we're found and fund ourselves. Okay. Um, this is unique. You know, I mean, theater's for profit. Um, and you have to have a backer, right? Henslow is like a right. wealthy grocer, I think. Um, so he backs, you know, his son-in-law's company, his company. Um, and there's this, you know, sense, of course, you, you have to have someone with money. At this point, though, these are all guys who've been successful actors, you know, in theater for a while. Mm-hmm. And so they agree to buy in. And Shakespeare is one of them. <laughs> and um, Richard and Cuthbert get a group of guys together. They go, they dismantle the theater. And they carry it off. <laughs> wow. And they get away with it. Um, there are a few lawsuits at this, but, you know, they get away with it. Um, and so they get some new land in a different area. And they erect their theater again and rename it. <laughs> and now it's the Globe. Um, but it is, of course, based on presumably the original design of the theater. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, once the theater had been built, you do get other theaters coming. And... It's hard to know. There was there was one theater, I think the Red Lion, that was built right before the theater. It was not successful, and it got torn down and disappeared. Um, so the theater is the one that became successful, and therefore it's considered basically the first. But as far as we know, the design is, seems to be James Burbage's sensibilities. And the theaters that followed were built along those lines. Bear baiting arenas were also built along these lines. So he's really borrowing from that. Right. Okay. But essentially what he does is combine that idea of a sort of arena, you know, a bit of a coliseum space, mm-hmm. a round space, yeah. with a three-quarter thrust stage, which is to say a square stage that comes out, it's got one back against the wall for entrances and exits and for scenery, and then the other three sides are surrounded by audience. Okay. Right. And actually the globe seems to have gone, it was maybe a little bit more than just three quarters, but anyway. And, of course, the audience on the ground floor stands, um, and then you pay an extra penny for each sort of tier you want to be up. <laughs> so, like... Okay. Um, and the tiers are covered. So the stage is covered, and the tiers are covered. The tiered seating is covered. Um, but the groundlings are not. Nonetheless, those are sort of the best seats, because the actors walk through the crowd, and you get to interact with them and put your feet on the stage mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, but the tiered seatings, they're benches. So, you know, if you want to sit down, you can. Um, there is a tier on the ground floor and then a middle floor and then an upper floor. So there are three tiers. How tall is the stage? Um, if you lean on it, I mean, counter height, I guess. <laughs> okay. You can very easily lean on it with your elbows. Okay. So like somebody my height could definitely like see what was going on. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yes, Somehow yes. I pictured it as being like fairly tall no 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 you know it's not like it's not like two feet but it's i guess three and a half okay maybe four feet high i don't even think it's four feet high three and a half i guess mm-hmm. yeah somewhere but just enough to give them a little separation yes yeah mm-hmm. and the thing about the bench seating in the covered tiers is that you can wander around there as well mm-hmm. which means that when they were staging these shows, of course, they didn't have, like, months and months of rehearsal. Like, you learned your lines, you came in, they staged it. There wasn't necessarily a separate director. Um, and then that was it. And you, like, did it, right? And if it was popular, you'd do it again the next week. 
So you can't be spending all your time thinking about sight lines and such, <laughs> which is mm -hmm. helpful because people can move around to see what they wanted to see. Yeah. Um, so this theater, right, the globe, of course, becomes very well known in history. Um, but as I said, it's not yeah. the only one, you know, the rose, the curtain. And they tend to be in the globe is in Southwark, which, of course, mm -hmm. now is, you know, it's on the bank of the Thames which is basically downtown London today. But at the time, um, this specific area was a liberty, specifically the liberty of the clink. It's named after the prison. Um, but it means an area that was outside the control of London's mayor and company. Oh, okay. Because um, it basically was royal land that was given to someone who then, like, it was their land, but kind of by royal decree or whatever, you know, or royal allowance, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so it'd been the, it was the Bishop of Winchester's land basically but this area <laughs> for like hundreds of years at this point since the 1100s at least um had been known for um being essentially the red light district aha <laughs> uh, because the things that the king and religious peoples are willing to allow and also tax make money off of are things that you know the in Shakespeare's day, the increasingly puritanic London mayor and company were not willing to allow. Mm -hmm. There was like a, what do you call it? Like a censor, someone who had to read the plays and stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right? Yes. I know that there's one play, The Isle of Dogs, that was just censored. There's, I mean... Is it Ben, ben Johnson? Yeah. Censoring could... Mm, this is that's probably for a different episode, honestly, um, okay. because the censoring, you know, police took a lot of pot shots at each other in politics and all sorts of things. So um, it is worth pointing out As the times ever. which Shakespeare didn't get censored, like Richard II. Um, they mm -hmm. not only let them put on the play, it's about the deposition of a king, which is astonishingly dangerous topic. Yeah. But then Essex had them put it on right before his rebellion thinking maybe that mm. it would, like, drive people to overthrow Queen Elizabeth. It, it did not. <laughs> um, and they were sort of hauled in for questioning, but basically let go. Mm -hmm. And decided they were not at all a part of it. And they were not stopped from doing the play in the future. Hmm. So okay. there's a lot to be said in some ways for the freedom that they had. Um, that was That is kind of extraordinary, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and is not a freedom that was necessarily enjoyed in other places. Yeah, so... But also, let's go back to this. You said that this area was owned by a bishop. Yes. Sort of. And yet it was a red light district. Yes, the Bishop of Winchester. That goes way back. Um, the I think the original Bishop of Winchester who got it blah, from Henry... Maybe the second? Maybe the first, even? Oh, wow. Yeah, going way back to, like, the 1100s, was given a license for, like, you know, could have gambling and prostitutes and stuff. And then... Whoa. Okay. Yeah, and the Bishop of Winchester's kept this kept this going. Yeah. <laughs> Recognizing a good thing when they see it, I guess. Yes. Well, but it's also worth pointing out, like, monasteries and so on frequently had stuff like this going on, and they taxed it. And, um, this, okay. in, this case is not a monastery. The, the land originally was... did belong to an abbey who then, I think, gave it to the Bishop of Winchester for his use or whatever, and then the king gave the Bishop of Winchester the license to do this stuff. Okay. Um, but anyway, so 
you know, royalty had a different sense sort of of... <laughs> I mean, I'm, I've been rereading a lot of Terry Pratchett recently. Yes. <laughs> and it's very much Lord Vetinari's perspective on things, mm-hmm. right? Citizens are going to do stuff. You tax them. You might, you might as well just tax them. Right. Right. <laughs> you can't legislate morality. So the rulers of England did not all believe this, but enough of them did that this area was a red light district in good standing. Shakespeare's, uh, of course, his theater is there. Um, but some hundreds of years before him, in the 1300s, late 1300s, uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the pilgrims start from an inn in Suffolk. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know... <laughs> Yes, it's a well-known sort of area like yeah. this. Okay. And London, as I said, the the mayor and the sort of, you know, whoever they were, council, um, they're increasingly puritanic in Shakespeare's day. And of course, I mean this very, li- like, they're Puritans. Right. <laughs> and so they're interested in sort of shutting down a lot of this stuff, but they do not have jurisdiction over the liberties. So, mm-hmm. um yeah. So until 1642, when everything is shut down, because they have control over everything, by they I mean Puritans, um, theater's good to go, basically. Um, but anyway, so this sense of a stage, right, um, is a really wonderful use of theater. Um, and it's worth pointing out that the no stage in Japan is a little bit like this, although it adds a sort of walkway... Um, onto the stage as well, but then it is three quarters mm-hmm. thrust, um, the, and the audience sort of sits around it and the walkway in this very interesting way, um, and that, you know, that idea. The Kabuki stage has a famous walkway that connects it, um, so the stage itself is a little proscenium esque, but there's a walkway called the Hanamichi that is basically part of the stage, and goes all the way to the back of the audience. It comes all the way through the audience, and there are scenes that happen on it. All sorts of fun stuff happens on it. So basically in the audience, mm-hmm. right? So this sense of the way theaters can work, the way stages can be shaped, um, is incredibly sort of important. Uh, and the fact that modern theater has become so heavily associated with the sort of just dark room separated from the actors mm-hmm. is very unfortunate. I do want to give a shout out, of course, as well to the street theater, <laughs> which happens all over the world. Yeah. And we've talked about some of it, right? The dance dramas in the Americas tended to be sort of outside in you know, town square, street theater. Uh, but obviously throughout England, Middle Ages, but also the early modern period, throughout all of Europe, you have tons of street theater. Mm-hmm. So you have pageant wagons, famously, you know, parade floats today, pageant wagons then. The only difference is that people like acted things out on them, whereas today people are usually just waving and yeah, stuff. <laughs> but, you know, I tend to compare this to like um, the Rose Bowl parade, right? The parade of mm-hmm. roses. Um Something like that, right? It's really incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they and usually it would pull up to a place, an intersection. People would be hanging out. You'd do your play, and then you'd move on to the next intersection, and you'd do it again. Right? And then there's also what's known as scaffold and platia. But essentially this means, right, a, a stage, a temporary stage that's built, mm-hmm. um, and people stand around it. And sometimes you had a big group of temporary stages built around a square. Mm-hmm. And then each stage would be something different, right? So for a passion play, like, one stage will be Herod's court, and one stage will be the Last Supper. Oh, okay. And you sort of travel around, and actors 
might continue their scene while another scene is happening. And um, in some cases, the audiences might be in the square, Mm -hmm. wandering around as things happen. (laughs) Um, In some cases, they might have been sitting on scaffolds in between the stages, right? Or sort of, you know, Hmm. angled at them in various ways. Um, But anyway, so there are a lot of really interesting ways that this is done. Um, And in those cases, frequently, the, the shape of... Um, the geography of the way the stages are put up mm-hmm. is very important, right? They're put up along certain sort of geographic axes. So we actually talked about maps a little bit yeah. a few episodes ago. Um, and sometimes the stages would be up to sort of recreate that sense. So you felt you were kind of like on a world map, for example, oh. right? You know, and up north, there was the stuff you expected, right? And to the west, to the south, to the east. East, of course, is heaven, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the symbolism would all be part of that. Yeah. So there's some really incredible things that that happened. Um, and a lot of these things we still do in certain ways, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit lesser extent, but concert stages that are set up, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> um, you might get multiple stages. You go around big, to different things. Yeah, the big, big um, festivals in whatever, in Grant Park yeah. in Chicago. Right. And it's not like a continuous story. Millennium Park, sorry. Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, we still use that type of staging in some ways. Um, so all of those things are really sort of an important element, I would say. Um, so, yeah. And this is something that I think, yeah, we just sort of, we wanted to discuss uh, just because I do think modern theater, there's a lot of forms of modern theater, like Brecht, um, mm-hmm. that have tried to not just tried. I mean, that basically bring this back, right? Yeah. But it's worth remembering that a lot of times we sort of think of it as very avant-garde. Like, oh my gosh, there's audience sitting on the stage. Um, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, they did not do in Shakespeare's day. Um, but, you know, that's not necessarily avant-garde, because in the Middle Ages, you didn't sit on the stage, but you might have wandered around the the square where the stages were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, there's a sort of interesting sense that the diversity of theater is making a comeback. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's not necessarily that people have discovered something that is new. Right. The diversity has definitely made a comeback, right? Or like, oh, now we include acrobatics in theater. And we're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. But, you know, that is also what the <laughs> Middle Ages did. In yes. China, obviously, which we discussed, but also in Europe. Also in the Middle East. You know, yes, acrobats were a huge part of theater. Because mm-hmm. tricks and stuff. Who doesn't want to see that? Yeah. Right? They didn't have separate circuses, necessarily. <laughs> and we talked already about, like, bringing puppets back, right? Yes. Into theater. And yes, obviously that's a pretty old thing in most parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that happen today that I think we forget just how old those traditions are and how far they go back. Um, and they should resurface. You know, mm-hmm. theater shouldn't be as, you know, if anyone can tell, I'm very against the idea that theater is just <laughs> sitting in the dark. Yeah. I mean, I go see a lot of theater that is that, but. I mean, so from my perspective, I go to a lot of operas, or I did in the before time. Yes. Back in the before time. And the problem with going to opera, at least here in Madison, Wisconsin, is that I am the youngest person in the audience by 30 oh, years. Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> like. And I feel that to some extent, the f- there's something about focusing on the the form of like sitting in the dark yes. and being silent that 
can keep young people out of the out of the theater yeah. um, who might otherwise really enjoy it and get into it when they're when they're quite young. Yes, 100%. Also, of course, the idea that um, speaking of, you know, politics, that opera frequently has huge social commentary, certainly the ones that continue to be done today. Um, and yeah. yet they're they're advertised, not necessarily purposely. I mean, and the lyric has been doing some great ads, um, but as a sort of stodgy old oh. art form, right? Um, yeah. I do want to say that having been to operas also in many places all over, um, that I'm actually frequently encouraged by the people who are sitting with me up in the whatever seats mm-hmm. as also being... The nosebleeds or... Yeah. Yes, lots of other, you know. And so there is something encouraging about that. But that's, of course, in cities like New York or Chicago mm-hmm. or, you know, where you're also at institutions that are just incredibly famous. Right. You know, you're at the Lyric or the Met. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, or Lincoln Center. I mean, people go there also because they're it's somewhere you should go if you're in New York or visiting mm-hmm. New York or you're curious, you know. But that does give me hope because I do think sometimes um, there there is a very specific um, way in which some companies have really tried to change themselves. Um, I do want to see the Philharmonic in New York was incredibly successful under their most recent director, I think, Mm -hmm. that he really did manage to sort of make them cool. Yeah. (laughs) And um, that's something that operas have sort of struggled with a little bit. Yeah. Um, So Alan Gilbert being the conductor of the Philharmonic that I'm talking about. Yeah. The problem with um, a smaller community like Madison, I think, is that you get... It's not like a touring production, like, like the people aren't touring right the people are here but all of the pieces right. of the production are sort of are t- brought in yes. right and then yes. yeah. because i feel like the audience wants to maybe see something that they're familiar with so they want to see the magic flute they want to see you know mm-hmm. tosca whatever they don't want to see nixon in china or, right. Um, you know, a, yeah. a few years ago, they did do a production of um, Dead Man Walking, which is a very modern oh, opera. Yeah. But they're not going to, you know, they're not going to get anybody in to do Akhenaten next year or whatever. Duh. Too bad. Pity. Yes. Um, yeah, well, that's that is definitely one issue, right? But I do think if you advertise stuff. So this is obviously the other thing that maybe has come up a little bit. Um, and I think next time we'll talk maybe more about this. We'll talk about sort of depictions of specific people mm-hmm. on stage. But um, politics, um, Greek theater, of course, is political because yeah. the whole point is it's a discussion of the democracy, the same as the courts. And so you go as a citizen and you sort of see this discussion. Um, right. And by Greek, of course, I mean classical Athenian theater, which is what we got. All right. 5th century Athens. Mm-hmm. So that idea really sticks around, right? Theater is social commentary. Um, it's a comment right out of the polis, the city. And so that idea, right? Yeah. We talked a lot about her feet and the way she uses it, of course, to sort of comment on women's issues, basically, <laughs> um, and religion. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the decolonizing, of course, our discussion has been about that idea. So theater is very much bound up in performance as a form of social commentary yeah 
not always, but frequently, right? So realism, that is the initial point of realism, which is why I wanted to give Ibsen a nice sort of tap on the shoulder. Um, modern mm-hmm. American realism has frequently taken that really to heart. And we get sort of interesting variations on American realism. So you have sort of magical realism of August Wilson. Mm-hmm. Taylor Max play here. Mac calls it absurd realism. I like that. Which should be yeah. sort of, you know, antithetical. <laughs> um, but the point is, right, mm-hmm. not magical realism. There's no sense of sort of supernatural. There's nothing like that. Yeah. But, you know, the idea that really that realism is essentially absurd. But it shouldn't be absurdist theater. Right. You know, the performances shouldn't be outrageous, but you acknowledge sort of the absurdity of life. Anyway, um, but, right, so... So this is sort of absurdity partially in the, the way that Camus talked about yes. it. Yeah. In, rather than, like, Groucho Marx. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Who also, like, very theatrical, but yet very different. Yes. Um, yeah, so, you know, this idea of theater as political. Um, and I think this is another thing, is that there are certain periods of theater we are used to thinking of as somehow apolitical which is ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? So Shakespeare, we all know Shakespeare is political. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. Um, but opera, for some reason, we look at opera, and we're like, oh, apolitical, which right. is complete BS. I mean, everything Verdi did was political. Maybe there's right. an exception in there, but most of it is tremendously political. I mean, you can't, you can't see La Boheme without being like, man... If they only had, you know, socialized medicine or something yes. at that point. <laughs> right. And antibiotics. Well, but yes. really, you know, medicine. Right. But it's a social and class commentary. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Puccini, Verdi, Mozart, they're all commenting on social issues. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... I know we've talked about, we talked about the Figaro. Yeah. who And the plays were sort of controversial mm-hmm. i mean um and then you know all these famous composers were like hey that's awesome let's turn it into opera absolutely yes Be controversial but with singing right of course yeah right um and i do think there have been some modern productions that have really um emphasized those elements mm-hmm. and i would say that that is really important yeah but you have to advertise that. And there is the yeah. flip side that if you are getting most of your money from those older supporters, they might not like it. <laughs> and that, I think, is the problem. Yeah. You have to incorporate and mm-hmm. encourage and build and grow a new audience while keeping your old paying audience happy. Yeah. Which is probably really why they could do something like Dead Man Walking, which is really about, you know, forgiveness and how terrible the death penalty is um rather than not and not doing you know nixon in china which is much more complicated um political message yes about i don't know u.s (laughs) u.s right empire building yes question mark um yeah and the Mm -hmm. revolution yeah the cultural yeah complicated it's complicated but there is there is that element and so i think um you know, that sort of aspect of it can be really difficult. And that happens, of course, not just with opera, but also with things like medieval theater, which was incredibly political. Mm-hmm. But again, sometimes people, you know, it can be hard to sort of get it in translation, as it were. 
But also, people go into it assuming that somehow it was apolitical. If it's religious, people frequently assume for some reason it's apolitical. Right. I mean, that's not even true nowadays when we're ostensibly supposed to separate church and state somehow. Right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Of course. Right. Um, But, you know, I I do think that that is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the idea that the modern proscenium, instead of, right, Ibsen's idea and the idea of those who follow him is that it makes us look in on this and see ourselves, right? Right. And so we're supposed to sit in that darkened theater and sort of reflect. But instead, it's become this sort of oppressive behavioral norm, right? Where you're supposed to sit and be quiet, and if you sneeze, people yell at you, yeah. right? Um, and then there are people probably surreptitiously using their cell phones who should be yelled at. Right. And so, right, there, there are these sort of problems. The reason you're in a darkened room isn't because, like, behaviorally, you're supposed to just be quiet and shut up or whatever. It's about the social commentary you're watching. Mm-hmm. You know, and if people are starting to forget that, then we should do other things for a while. You know, and shake people out of that comfort zone. Yeah. So then to be in the darkened theater is sort of unique again. And not just, like, what you do because that's what's expected. Yeah. You know? And like I said, it also makes room for more sort of sensory-friendly performances Mm -hmm. and so on. Um, Darkened rooms shouldn't be, like, mandatory. Silence shouldn't be mandatory. All of those things. I'm going to say, and I'm a little biased because I did contribute lines to this production, but one of the best received productions of uh, Macbeth that I was involved in, um, (laughs) they did it in a beer garden. And everybody was drunk, including the actors. It was called Deadly in a Drunken Macbeth. Um, Awesome. People had to to take shots when they missed lines. And the audience was super engaged, you know, like yelling at the stage, getting in. Like, they were so into it. And uh, it was, you know, obviously at the time we (laughs) the time we did the show, I think I was eight months pregnant, so couldn't partake in the alcohol. But the fun was still very contagious. Yes. No, absolutely. Right. And that's, you know, not so far removed what Shakespeare would have done. Um, the groundlings do get a really bad rep. Mm-hmm. This is worth pointing out. Um, but that's not the point at all, right? They People look at them as drunken, unruly, or whatever, by the standards, A, of modern performance, and B, by the fact that some of the people who call them that were the richer people who were sitting other places and were annoyed by, like, the loud students. Yeah. But who hasn't, you know, every <laughs> generation has been annoyed by the loud students sitting in the front, yes. right? I mean, it's <laughs> mandatory. We're sitting in the balcony now, right? Because we've sort of reversed things. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But anyway, so, um, so, yeah, so this was a sort of reminder, right, of the ways in which theater does exist, the ways in which it is participatory. And the the way we got there, I guess, is really the point. Mm-hmm. So um, the funny thing is that this one was a little bit less about actual medieval because... <laughs> That part is cool, right? Um, We will talk more about that. Very much about, you know, for those wondering, like, how did we get to a modern proscenium from this very participatory, frequently outdoor theater, um, you know, pageant wagon, scaffold and platia, um, even things like Shakespeare's Globe. Mm -hmm. How did we end up in this sort of darkened room cut off from the actors? Well, it started as a really incredible sort of artistic experiment in set building, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Perspective scenery. And then moved into a really interesting social experiment, realism. Yeah. 
and then became just this oppressive behavioral norm. Mm -hmm. Right? Just another way to sort of inflict people and make theater kind of middle class. Right? Contain theater. Basically contain the power of theater. Defang it. Make it middle class. Which Shaw would call middle class morality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said that ironically, of course. It's funny because you get the feeling, thinking about it, that if you brought Shakespeare forward in time somehow mm-hmm. and you showed him various TV shows, he might actually feel like there is something more akin to what he was used to in like reality TV where you do have people, like, talking directly to the camera about stuff that they've just done, rather than, like, you know, your scripted, you know, show where people are read their lines and they have right. a Right. Well, I mean, I think um, it's a little bit of both, right? Because, yes, arguably something like The Office, the British one, of course, but we could say the American one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about... Um, Park, Parks and Rec, yeah. There's something very Shakespearean about it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, it, there is very much a sort of, yeah, early modern yeah. take on comedy there. Which is, um, yeah, it's worth, and it's also worth pointing out that television also shouldn't have to be bound by the fact that it does mm-hmm. kind of have a fourth wall. <laughs> but there are ways to break it. Deadpool, which I was just rewatching. Yes. Which brilliantly breaks the fourth wall, because yeah. the comic does, right? Uh, but the movie does brilliantly as well. And at one point in the original, Deadpool, um, you have a moment where he's like, fourth wall break within a fourth <laughs> wall break. That's like 16 <laughs> walls. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is hilarious. But also, yeah, right? There's a brilliant way in which that movie is engaging and sort of engages with its own... Right. Fact that it mm-hmm. is separated from the audience. So yes, we need more of that. Yes. Okay. And as... Participatory video games are also becoming a thing, you know. Like, more participatory oh, than just, yes. like, you do your, you know, your set thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to cut us off there. Yep. That was really exciting. <laughs> And it sounds like we might still have enough to do maybe one more episode on medieval theater. Yes, we're going to talk about, like, Jews on stage and stuff. Actually, given your area of specialty, it could be, like, an infinite number more episodes on medieval theater. But we will eventually (laughs) go talk about something else for a little while. Yes, but it'll only be one. Okay. (laughs) Cool. Um, So... You know, someday I'm going to write down all the announcements so I don't have to, like, panic at the last minute. Um, (laughs) We have a Facebook group. Right. (laughs) It's like Ask a Medievalist. You can search for it on the Facebooks and follow along. We post um, some small articles sometimes that catch our eye that have relevance. And also we post about the new episodes. Um, So if you're not, like, listening you know, with a continually refreshed RSS feed, it's a great way to stay up to date. We have a website at askamedievalist.com, which has a questions form. You're welcome to send in your questions that way. We also have an email address, which is questions at askamedievalist.com and a Twitter handle, which is at askamedievalist. So there are many ways to get in touch with us. If you have questions about the Middle Ages, you have no excuse. Send them our way. We'd love to hear from you. And 
Uh, until next time, everybody, you know, stay safe and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. <laughs>